Welcome to the Hospitality Forward podcast with listeners in more than 160 countries worldwide. My name is Hannah Lee. I am president and founder of Hannah Lee Communications, an award-winning global PR agency specialized in hospitality and travel. And I'm Michael Anstendig, editor-in-chief of Hannah Lee Communications, as well as the award-winning co-author of The Japanese Art of the Cocktail and The Food and Beverage Writer. Helping the community has always been part of our agency's mission. We understand that a lot of business owners, bartenders, chefs, sommeliers, and others might not have the resources to hire a PR agency. We believe everyone has a story to share, so we created our podcast where our listeners can get to know leading reporters and writers and start building relationships. Each week, these top journalists from around the globe share their practical advice on how hospitality and travel industry professionals can be featured in their stories. In fact, one of our loyal listeners got featured in the New York Times after listening to our podcast and following our media guest tips. So, you could be next. In addition, we give away a copy of our agency's book, The Japanese Art of the Cocktail, to a listener who shares how our podcast helped them tell their story to the media. Simply email us at hello at hanaleecommunications.com, have hospitality forward in the subject line, and share the tip that you learned. And now, on with the show. In this episode, we're delighted to chat with Andy Wang. Andy is a contributing writer for Observer, where he recently published the 2023 Nightlife and Dining Power List. He's written regularly about restaurants and nightlife for publications including Food and Wine, Los Angeles Magazine, and Rob Report. Andy's work has also appeared in the New York Times, Forbes, New York Magazine, Condé Nast Traveler, and many others. He was previously the real estate and travel editor at the New York Post. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you, Hannah? Hi, Michael. So nice to see you. Yeah, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about your journey to journalism. Can you tell our listeners how you got into this business? And was it always a dream of yours to be a reporter? Uh, you know, like a lot of people in media, especially food media, I mean, especially now because people ask, hey, how do you do this? How do I do this? And the answer isn't the greatest because for most people, it ends up being, you know, kind of a happy accident. But the short version of my story is that I was born at the right time, finished school at the right time. The dot-com boom was happening. I got very, very lucky and I got to write you know, some crazy stories, like the first New York Times story about Google, the first New York Times story about blogs. And this was so early that, like, I put in the word weblog because that was the term at the time. And the editor was like, I think that's too much jargon. What do we call this? And I think we called it Web Digest. So I had gone to journalism school. I was very lucky to get an internship at Microsoft when they launched MSNBC. But honestly, I think a lot of it was just the luck of the timing. And then in terms of writing about hospitality, you know, I wrote about sports. I wrote about tech. At the New York Post, I launched their residential real estate section. That sort of, you know, spawned me going off into the travel section. And as you know, about 10, 15 years ago, the most exciting travel stories were all tied to food, beverage, nightlife. And I just started writing about that a lot in, you know, major American cities, but also all over the world. 
uh, when we first met you, um, you were covering real estate and travel for the New York Post, and then you decided to move to sunny LA. So what would you say are the biggest differences between New York and LA in terms of their dining and drinks scenes? Sure. I mean, a lot of this has been said before, but it is true, although it's changing a lot in LA, that like, LA does not really have that focus on fine dining that New York has. And it's in a way, it's kind of refreshing because most people just don't care. In LA, what there are is there are, you know, far-flung neighborhoods that are hyper, hyper specific. So, you know, much larger areas that could be considered a Chinatown, even ones that are technically not named Chinatown, right? Thai town, Koreatown, taco trucks on the east side, and just all these pockets of you know, areas where people pretty much just like they live, work, and they dine differently and they're happy. But then there's a whole subset of LA people that are super intrepid and are, you know, just driving literally an hour and a half to go eat food on, you know, on a Saturday because back in the day, Jonathan Gold told them or now TikTok tells them. And I think that is one big difference about people in New York being less intrepid. And like, look, I love New York. I, in many ways, like still feel like I'm a New Yorker, but it was sort of like, you know, you would see Pete Wells write about a Sri Lankan restaurant and even like Sri Lankan people, you know, would be like, well, I'm proud, but I'm not going to Staten Island, you know, from wherever I live. And in L.A., there are people who wake up every single day and they're just like, OK, it says this restaurant's 41 miles away from where I live. I'm just going to go right now. You're, you're now a freelance writer and you contribute to Observer, Rob Report and Forbes. Can you tell us about the topics that you generally cover? You know, I cover restaurant openings. I mean, that's just sort of the, you know, easiest through line in terms of things that are new and hot that people care about. Like, you know, because I because of the publications you named, you know, obviously like things a lot of times skew more to the luxury side of things. But at the same time, you know, from my parties, the type of things that I showcase are often like, you know, Pop-ups that are years away from having a restaurant, you know, very, very interesting immigrant food stories. So I know it's sort of like, in a way, like a hard way to tell people to pitch me because, yes, I want the thing about the $6,000 dinner during F1. But if you have a good story, you know, about somebody who's making his own tortillas and driving to Mexico just to go buy, you know, a very specific type of corn – Maybe I can convince an editor that, that that story is valid, too. But what I try to do, honestly, is, you know, for every two or three of the super luxury stories that I get asked to write, I'm inclined to write, I go and try to find one of the other ones, too. So would you say the style of your writing differs for each publication as well? I mean, I would say that probably in the past it used to more. I would say honestly that because of, you know, what's happened with the internet and this new form of timeliness, you know, I was talking to my friend Michael Kaplan. I used to be his editor at the New York Post and he thanked me years ago when I was his editor because he said, you really just allowed me to write in this looser style, you know, and it just felt like I sort of had more freedom, right? Just to sort of write the way that I want to. 
And to me, what's happened because of the internet is almost everybody I write for, whatever this quote unquote looser style, some version of it flies because they're also realizing that like we want to get this stuff up in a hurry. We want it to sound, you know, conversational. It doesn't need to be as lyrical or overwritten. Honestly, we're editing this maybe once or twice. It's not like when you used to do print and there's like five or six edits and you literally are taking out a pencil and you're marking things and all that. Like, Let's let's be real about this. It's like my stuff go, still goes through a more rigorous process just because I'm used to it. My editor's used to it. We read it over multiple times. But you're competing against things now that are just – they're written in a hurry and they're published in a hurry. So I think that thankfully, like because I've written for a long time, I understand what looseness works versus what level of formality. But I think that just comes with time. For our listeners, can you tell us the difference between feature story versus roundup stories? I tend to not really love to do roundups. I mean, I'll do them when people ask me to do them at the end of the year. The thing that I like about features is that you hone in on a subject, and the subject could be this restaurant opening, this chef, and then you find whatever you, I mean, whatever I think is the most compelling angle or angles. And you just tell the story through that lens. And the way that I like to write features and what bothers me, and I've said this before about like a lot of other media is that like a lot of times the stories aren't really like centered on the perspective of the people making the food, running the restaurant. A lot of times it's something like inserting a perspective in it, right? So when I write features, I'm very careful about like, you can generally tell if I think something is good or bad or mediocre or excellent or whatever. But for the most part, I just let the people talk and tell their story and let the reader sort of judge. And then, you know, and then I think of roundups for the most part as editors being like, okay, here's a holiday or here's an event. So give me a bunch of things that are relevant to that or go find a trend. And the thing about like working at newspapers and magazines for years, trends are kind of ridiculous just because all you, for the most part, you're just making editors and writers struggle to find here are three or four versions of kind of the same thing, right? And what's the reason that they exist right now? And the reason usually in the restaurant world is that it's just a coincidence because one of these restaurants is supposed to open three years ago and it got delayed. And one of these was in a hotel that got delayed and somebody flipped his concept or menu at the last minute. And then here's this guy who's doing it all along, right? There's never really like an overarching story about, you know, why certain things are happening. Because even for the things that I care about, like if you look at like, okay, you can say that like modern Korean food is trending right now. There have been many, many attempts in the past where you could have argued that it was trending and then it didn't take, right? Is it going to take this time? I sure hope so. But I remember the last three or four times that those stories were written, including some that I was asked to write. So I don't always even believe that it's real, you know, when somebody's like, do a roundup of like, here are five restaurants that do meze platters now or all serve chickpeas. I mean, what does that even mean, right? That's an excellent question. So as a freelance writer, can you take us a little bit through your creative process you know, for example, how long on average does it take for an idea to take shape, get pitched and be published? You know, I have a calendar essentially of events like whatever, Freeze Art Fair, Art Basel, F1, big hotel openings, just to see, okay, so these are the things that these audiences care about. What are the F and B elements? What are the F and B elements of that, right? And then by the time those things come around, I have a bunch of ideas and I'm just ready to go. Like, you know, generally, I'm uh what will happen is that I'll hear about, you know, through 
various sources, you know, just the people directly, sometimes PR, of something that's going to happen in the very near future, two or three months, a prominent opening. I'll get reasons why this is compelling. I'll start thinking a little bit, you know, about how I can approach this. And then a lot of it, honestly, like then I'll see on Instagram, like all the updates of construction and the menu and the R&D and the friends and family. And then by the time the restaurant opening opens, I have a pretty clear picture of like, okay, if I'm going to write an early story, this is what I'm going to do. So I would say that for a lot of those stories, I think about it, you know, for a couple months in advance. I mean, not that much. I'm thinking about a lot of these at the same time. Uh, typically, you know, I'll go visit a restaurant, you know, I'll set up an interview. Uh, it has to basically, the story has to sit in my head for three or four days and then luckily it kind of writes itself, but it almost never for these type, for the feature types of stories happens right away, unless I'm on such a crazy deadline where I just have to do it. But yeah, I mean, all in, it's probably, you know, like a one week process of actually working on the story. So, I mean, it seems like you come up with your own story ideas most of the time, but we also know that you get a lot of pitches. So what percentage of them do you get from PR agencies like us versus individuals pitching themselves? I mean, more and more now, especially because, you know, I've crossed over and I've done events. Uh, a lot of chefs now just DM me directly. And certainly this has worked in the past. I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, like there's a lot of prominent examples, but there's a restaurant called Moosecraft Barbecue. They're in Los Angeles now. Two years in a row, they're a barbecue restaurant, and they've been in the top 10 restaurants in the LA Times 101. You know, they got a Michelin bib gourmand. I remember at the time when they were cooking in their backyard that the way that they got attention is they literally just DM'd me, Eater, everybody else, you know, very earnestly, long message, kind of explaining their story, and then all of us believed them enough to go try it once. It was phenomenal, and I mean... And I think that's happened many, you know, like many, many times. I mean, I don't know what percentage, but I would say probably like if I guessed at least one out of 10 stories comes from somebody I do not know, just like bravely sending me and some other people something. Well, that's that's very encouraging for our listeners to know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That specifically, that's the reason we created our podcast to help those individuals who don't have a PR agency, you know, but who has a great story to share. No, that's great. I admire that. Thank you. And speaking of The Observer, you recently did their 2023 Dining and Nightlife Power List. And it's really great that the publication is doing this and recognizing some of the most accomplished people in our industry. So what was your criteria for including the notables on this list? I wanted this to be about you know, measurable business and cultural impact. So if you go and you read that list, there are things that people have told me, you know, in that, like how many covers they're doing is the obvious one, right? But also like how much of one certain ingredient they're selling, right? You know, how much heirloom corn they're going through, right? How many restaurants they actually have, you know, this year versus five years ago, right? And all these, and all these other metrics that show that what they're doing sort of like transcends the fact that like they just have a few restaurants, right? I had nightlife guys basically tell me like these are the things that we've – these are the products that we've invested in. And some of those products like are unicorns right now. And I wanted it to be also just about overall impact in the hospitality industry because 
obviously the people who get all the shine and they deserve it in many ways are the operators, right? The chefs and the owners. But I wanted to, you know, spotlight people who came up with, you know, creative financing to help people or people who create the whole tech stack that allows restaurants to operate. And, you know, a lot of these behind the scenes people who are actually the infrastructure of this whole business. So, I mean, I don't think any list is perfect, but if you sort of, you, you go and you look at it, there is a lot of tangible sort of like, you know, math and facts within the list. You know, when you read these blurbs and, and then, you know, once you decide that these people are the ones that belong in the list, you just give them the opportunity to talk. And this is the time. Yeah. Where, you know, you can pound your chest and pat yourself on the back because it's like, yeah, you succeeded and you really are a model for other people for better or worse. And, you know, and some people come at it with more humility and some people come at it with more swagger. But a lot of that is really like what defines their restaurant and their nightlife groups to begin with. So it makes sense, right? Everyone on that list made an impact on our uh, community. So, um, yeah, it was very joyful to read and Obviously, we want to thank you so much for recognizing our major food group clients, the powerful trio, Chef Rich Teresi, Chef Maria Carbon, and then the one and only Jeff Zelazenik. So thank you so much for the recognition. Of course. So let's, let's circle back to uh, Miami Formula One. You had an awesome story in Rob Report about all the pop-ups. So how, how did that story come about? That one I was asked to do, honestly, just because, you know, I guess I just have years and years of experience of still having the, of covering stuff like this, but still having the enthusiasm to go like treat this like a serious, exciting thing. Because I basically write these things for people who've never done it before, right? Or people who really, really want to go. And what was happening with Formula One in Miami was just that because of the intersection of Miami and major food group going to Miami, but also everything that happened in the pandemic that made so much of New York, you know, and the East Coast, you know, honestly move to Miami, if not part-time, full-time, there's just this New York energy, obviously like this New York financial impact that's there. And things were very, very over the top. So I just started calling people, trying to find the things that were the most over the top. And okay, so yeah, there's Carbone Beach. And there's this Massimo Bator dinner that's $6,000. But Every restaurant was trying to do something to capture that market. And then I actually went to F1 Miami and Carbone Beach was full every night. And then I went to the Massimo Tour thing and that was also full of VIPs and they had paid $6,000 for the most part to be there. And like, okay, look, that world is obviously not for everybody. But again, it shows that hospitality can take you to the upper echelon of anything in the world right now. And as a form of aspiration for any kind of chef, I think that that in itself is a pretty good story. Yeah, I agree. It, it made us very jealous. <laughs> yeah, it was fun, but people were, but you know, all the chefs there, I mean, they were working. That's the whole thing. You know, they were not there to party. They were there to just realize that like in a short period of time, you know, we can do something that's very impactful and also very much helps the bottom line of our company. So why not do it? For people who has like a major events they're planning. So is there like three to two months in advance they should reach out to you so that you can reach out to your editor? Yeah, I mean, if they have details about it, like two or three months in advance, that's great. But, you know, in reality, a lot of these things happen super, super last minute. You know, there have been, like, I think 
I was one of maybe two people that actually announced Carbone Beach. Like, I think our stories hit at the same time last year. I was the first... I think I maybe did the only pre-interview with Massimo Botero about his lunch. I mean, his dinner. So if something can't, if something you know can't really be released that far in advance, then offer me some reason you know to convince an editor to do it a little closer to the date. We know you're always looking. You're always searching for new ideas. So looking ahead, could you? Kindly share what kind of stories you'll be working on, let's say, within the next six months or so, so that maybe our listeners can be part of. Sure. Um, uh, I think I'm going to be looking for more Vegas coverage, both on strip and off strip, just because there's been two very prominent hotel openings, Durango and Fountain Blue. Just going through those, there's a lot to sort of eat through. But at the same time, because of that, you know, because of what's happening in Vegas, a lot of the other major casinos are also, you know, even like Mandalay Bay before Super Bowl, they're going through major revamps. Bobby Flay's opening a restaurant at Caesars. But when I start doing these stories about Vegas, I'll go write about a pizza place that's off-strip or a donut place that's, you know, a, a completely new concept that somebody with restaurants just like, you know, decided our pastry chef should open this place. So I think that there's a lot of things where when I have this, you know, broader assignment to go look at all of it. There's an opportunity for things that you typically think like, well, Andy's writing about Fountain Blue and Durango and splashing new openings. How does that apply to me? It's like, no, just send me your other cool Vegas stuff that that I may not know about, right? So I'd say overall, you know, that, you know, as a city, I think is something, you know, I live in I live in Los Angeles. I'm trying to make more of an effort, you know, even though I think I do a decent enough job at it. Of covering, you know, I mean, the outskirts is sort of the wrong word, but, you know, there's like really, really great food, obviously, like from the South Bay to the San Gabriel Valley, all over the San Fernando Valley. And I think that even though I don't like the idea of roundups, what I'm noticing is that there have been really, really, there have been stories about like, you know, various blocks where a lot of compelling things are happening at the same time. And so I want to write more and more of those types of pieces. And, when it's four or five really, really interesting things that really, like, change a neighborhood, like, I start to get excited about it. And, I mean, that's true, you know, anywhere in America, honestly. So when when, when people are, are ready to pitch their stories to you, what are some important things they should keep in mind, you know, when, when sending you a pitch? I mean, like, look, a lot of reporters say the same thing, like, you know, Make sure that you've read my work. Make sure that you're not pitching me something that I've done before. Make sure that you're not quoting something that's from my own story to pitch me and all that. Like, I, for the most part, like, I don't care about that. It doesn't really, it doesn't bother me that much. I sort of just want to sort of just flip it and just think like, all right, if you don't even read my work, that's fine. But you understand the type of publications that I write for, you know, who is their actual target audience? What are examples of similar coverage that they've done that they've done before and go find me that angle, right? Like it's much more useful for me uh, for you to spend 10 minutes going through your menu and highlighting three or four things that might matter for this publication instead of me figuring it out. It's like, look, I'll get there at some point, but if you pretty much just tell me that like this whatever, this Peking duck, you have to order three days in advance. And it's when you make a reservation, you need to do that. Then that to me, is like, okay, let me go see why this is such a big deal or really 
or are they really, really super, you know, booked out and this is an impossible thing to get? Like I wrote about, um, uh, I was not close to the first one to write about Damaka, but I got to be the first person who wrote about eating the rabbit because they have one rabbit a day, right? And that rabbit was very, very hard to get. And so now there's this fresh new angle for a place like Robertport to cover, like, that's sort of the thing that I want to tell people who are pitching me. Both things can be true at the same time. Go find me the craziest, crazy over-the-top thing in your quote-unquote modest little restaurant or, you know, in your crazy over-the-top restaurant. Explain to me why, you know, this person milling this corn is the reason that this happens, and maybe I can write the story that way too. Andy, as someone who is so immersed in our industry and who really has his finger on the pulse – are there any particular people or companies you think are having the greatest impact on our hospitality and travel industry and are really moving it forward? If you look at um, uh, JP and Elia, obviously at Automix, and you look at, say, Ori and Genevieve at Bestie and Bavel, the thing that makes them proud is like how so many people essentially like worked for them and then found themselves, right? And Orange and Genevieve are the best example. They're now at the point where like they don't want to open more restaurants for themselves. They want to open them for their their people because they know how to provide the infrastructure. But if you go look at it, they haven't even done this yet. And you go just sort of look at the roster and, you know, they're Cooks have opened restaurants, including Poltergeist, which was, you know, just made the LA Times 101 and is just completely like out there, you know, psychedelic restaurant that defies all conventions of what restaurants will be. This is what other people say. I actually think Diego's a little more controlled than that, but he knows how to spin a narrative, right? But Kuya Lord, which is a Filipino restaurant that just got named Bon Appetit Bestie Restaurant, also came out of Bestie and Bavel. There are so many other examples of this, and that's what makes Ori and Genevieve super, super proud. And then, you know, I would say that, you know, and these guys are partners with me. They help me with my party. So there obviously is some sort of interest here. But, you know, the Johan and Andy, the co-founders of InKind, which is now funded 1,200 restaurants in a very non-traditional way that requires restaurants not to give up equity and not to pay back a loan, but just uses essentially, you know, the differential between what a glass of wine costs and what a restaurant sells it to, to buy food and beverage credit from people and sell it. Like those to me are like sort of the things that like, okay, you're finding creative ways to make something that in many ways is arguably unsustainable like, you know, somewhat, somewhat more feasible, right? So any of these things that can sort of help chefs like manage their cash flow better, keep more money, keep more equity, actually pay themselves back. Because you know, the biggest danger in the restaurant industry, and this is true of restaurants that seem successful, is that after years and years, a lot of operators just give up and they go do something else because they're just like the, the financial reward just isn't there. And this is the case of restaurants that have been named Restaurant of the Year by like five different publications, as you know. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about social media. You mentioned, um, uh, you know, chefs are DMing you with their stories. So do you find Instagram as the most powerful or effective doing your work? Or are there any other social media platform that you feel is very effective? I definitely think it's Instagram by a huge margin. I mean, I definitely get the most useful information. I mean, I do look at TikTok here and there. I mean, I look at Instagram every day because I feel like I have to. And then, you know, I'll look at TikTok occasionally. People send me stuff on TikTok all the time. And for the most part, those stories just don't 
match sort of my areas of coverage as much, right? But Instagram in terms of finding out like what's going on at new restaurants, because food is like obviously so image driven. The amazing thing about Instagram, as you know, is that like I'll be about to write about a restaurant and I'm not allowed to go to the restaurant yet because they're not letting media in or there's only eight people. But then I'll go look and somebody has literally posted every single dish from one of the previews just on their personal account. I'm like, well, I know what all this food looks like already. I know what they're going for. I know they're going to change it. But that's an that's amazing information that you could not get about a restaurant 10 years ago, obviously. And it's so readily and it's so readily available. Right. And it also makes me, you know, and like FOMO also works in a way, because if I see a bunch of prominent people Instagramming about a restaurant, it makes me want to go figure out, like, how do I not know more about this or should I take this seriously, even though I didn't I thought I didn't care. Right. I mean, I think that's one thing that, you know, kept happening with Damaka, for example, like prominent chefs kept going there and I would see the repost and I'm like, all these chefs are going to eat this Indian food that I've never seen before. I probably should go to this restaurant, right? Let's say there's a new restaurant and you see beautiful photos of the the design of the uh, restaurant or bar on their social media before you see that on news media. Do you see that as a competitor? Do you feel like they should hold off the images and, and you know, those uh, media assets for media members? I personally don't care. And I mean, at this point, because I do events, a lot of chefs sort of ask me for advice. And a lot of them have figured out that they actually have more of an impact if they announce it themselves and give it to Eater. Because sort of the people that they want to see it are the ones that are following them already, and then they will send that to their friends, et cetera, et cetera, right? Which is not to say Eater doesn't have an impact. Eater has a huge impact. So it really like depends on a case-by-case basis. But for me personally, because I've been in this game so long and I know that exclusives barely matter – I mean, I get offered exclusives all the time, and for the most part, I'm like, yeah, I don't really need to be first. I just want to make sure I get a good story. But what my editors tend to want, which is what I tell PR people and I tell operators, it's like, look, if you have to go give the architectural exclusive to somebody else or you want to post it on your social first, but you've got to give throw the editor a bone and basically say that these are the first culinary photos. Or if they're not the first culinary photos, these are the first photos that they get of the bar cart, of the table side duck, and this thing they light on fire, right? So then the editor is like, okay, well, I have a compelling reason now to run this because nobody's ever seen this before. So I think that, like, you just save something. And I used to say this all the time, like, when I was an editor signing this, you know, even giving advice to PR, where I'm like, a lot of these editors... They're fighting over these dumb exclusives, but you realize that you can give the mini exclusive to somebody, the cocktail exclusive to somebody, the architecture exclusive to somebody, and then the actual interview of the owner to somebody else. So if people really want to play that game, there's a way that you can do it. But I would say that, you know, now I don't get mad at anybody if they post their best photos on social media because they deserve to own their own narrative. Well, let's shift gears here for a moment. So what's your favorite drink? And if you could choose one person, contemporary or historical, who would you share it with and why? I mean, I would say that my favorite drink, my consistent go-to, depending on what mood I'm in, there are two, right? There's a Negroni or an Aperol Spritz, right? I also play a lot of poker, and I have over the years. You can't really drink Negronis playing poker if you're trying to be coherent enough to sort of, you know, win money and not lose. But you can drink a few spritzes, right? So I'm going to say... A spritz on 
some trip to Vegas or somewhere else where I've gotten very, very lucky, and the other nine people at the final table of whichever tournament I'm at. So, for your next trip, what country would you like to visit, and why? I think I'd love. I mean, my two favorite countries are Italy and Japan, and I would be very happy to revisit them. I think Japan, because for the most part, I've primarily only spent time in Tokyo, and I want to go to some of the other cities and see. You know, whether they're as vertically integrated as Tokyo, where obviously like you can have one building and it's 17 floors and there's restaurants at the top and at the bottom, you know, versus the other Japan that I hear about where things are isolated and everything is very, very serene. And it's like you're going to private residence or spa. So yeah, I mean, hopefully I get to do that in the next year. We love Japan. We've gone there many times. One and of our favorite destinations. Yes, just just dining and drink scene are just incredible. Not to not to mention the hospitality. Yeah, endless. Yep, yeah, exactly. You you love being in places where you go to restaurants and bars, and the people there, you can tell that th- this is where they want to be. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So before we let you go, what's the best way for our listeners to contact you? I'm pretty good about reading DMs on Instagram. And in fact, I probably read that even more than my email. But for people who want to email me, it's Andy, S-W-A-N-G at Gmail. Uh, and, you know, I eventually get to reading most of my emails, but I just get so many emails. And a lot of them are about, you know, this is my one pet peeve, or about like beats that I haven't covered in years. So it's very, very hard for me to go through that. And honestly, like I have five email accounts at this point that are all consolidated. But yeah, you can use that for an email. But if you're sending me something food specific, I'm pretty good about reading DMs too. And what's your IG handle? Uh, it's Andy, W-A-N-G-N-Y-L-A. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. And we had us fantastic time chatting with you and I can't wait to see you again in New York City. Yeah, no, I'm really happy to do this. I mean, yeah, and I'm glad that you're doing this for the industry. Oh, thank Thank you. Thank you. Now that was a very inspiring chat with Andy. Now that you know what Andy is looking for, please feel free to reach out to him and introduce yourself. And don't forget to mention that you heard him on our Hospitality Forward podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Also, for all media guests to date, you can find their information and episodes in our agency's website, www.hanaleecommunications.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.